welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Wound care? Why would anyone need it? And what does it have to do with plastic surgery? Well, some acute traumatic wounds are so large or devastating that intervention is needed to achieve healing and closure. Other lingering or chronic wounds may have associated problems that stop the healing potential in its tracks. They need help. Now, there are historical recordings of wound care from the ancient Greeks and Romans, and even before that, when treatments for problematic wounds included such things as the use of clay, plasters, herbs, turpentine, and yes, beer. Actually, derivatives of some of those remedies are used today. But the field of wound treatment has had many advances, particularly in the last 50 to 100 years. There are currently thousands of wound care products available, and now there are even specialized wound care centers. For this episode, we have Dr. David Zamorowski in conversation to help explain the plastic surgeon's role in wound management, both surgical and non-surgical. He discusses the progression of treatment for wounds throughout the decades and relates some interesting advancements in the field, as well as some great ideas for the future. Here we go. Well, I'm pleased today to have Dr. David Zamorowski with me, and he is a now-retired private practice plastic surgeon who has been interested in wound care throughout his career, and even after retirement has kept active by being involved in medical education and healthcare simulation. Welcome, Dr. Zamorowski. Thank you. And we know each other uh, as practice colleagues in the Kansas City area in the past, and so that's why I wanted to have you on the show, and I'm thrilled to have you with us here today. Though you are retired, you've had such an accomplished career in plastic surgery. Would you mind telling the listeners what the scope of your practice was and how it changed over the years? I'd be happy to. I finished my plastic training here in Kansas City at KU in uh, 1978. Goodness, that's a long time ago now, isn't it? That's a bit of time ago, yeah. Uh, I stayed on in Kansas City and uh, spent 25 years in private practice and then uh, went back to um, academics and interest in healthcare education. Probably, as with most private practitioners, After 10 years to get your feet on the ground, your most productive period is 10 to 20 years of practice. 
And in that time, I, I think I contributed to the society. I contributed to my hospital. And I contributed to wound care centers. I was uh, working in the wound care center at Bethany, which I founded. Bethany Hospital. Uh, the hospital no longer exists. And uh, the wound care center was transferred to Shawnee Mission Hospital. And mm-hmm. I continued working there. We had the first available multi-factor growth factor solution prepared from the patient's own blood platelets to put on the wound, and the result was uh, very dramatic with uh, this florid angiogenesis that you could see with the naked eye developing even within a matter of a day or two and then progressing from there. Uh, So it was a very exciting time, and in looking for a better way to put this growth factor on the wound and control it, rather than just wetting a sponge, which is what we were doing, I came up with the principles that were later the source of patents for the vac, the track pad, the irrigation vac, and the incisional dressing, the Provena. So all through the 90s, I worked with KCI, and after that, they were bought out by 3M. And and that's probably uh, uh, the most significant thing that I did with my plastic surgery practice. Those are pretty wonderful accomplishments, and I think people may not realize how innovative these developments were and really game changers for the world of wound healing. And I want to take a step back a little bit. If you could explain for the listeners what a growth factor is, just basics, and what it can do to help a wound. When I was in medical school, I remember asking the professor the question, what is an injury? How how do the cells get the signal to know to respond to this injury to start healing? And the answer was, well, they just do. <laughs> uh, and of course, that meant that nobody knew. Right. <laughs> My wife is a PhD biochemist, and she got her degree at Vanderbilt. And right down the hall from her laboratory was the laboratory of Stanley Cohen, who got the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the first wound factor. Mm-hmm. He isolated this protein from, I think it was guinea pig saliva, some kind of animal saliva, mm-hmm. and showed that when it was um, placed on cells in a cell culture, it made them grow divide, migrate, and do all the things that were necessary for healing. Yes. This um, first identified growth factor was epithelial growth factor, named by him, and so it was known as EGF, and that was the very first one. The list now is dictionary long. Yes, of course. The... Um, Current interest is not in solitary proteins, but in the complex microvesicles that cells produce containing multiple growth factors, pieces of RNA, all kind of signals to their neighbor cells, telling them what this particular controlling cell says they should do to get with the ticket and the team to heal a wound. Yeah. 
So this this is a very exciting field still, with so much still to find out, and every day a, a new little piece of information is known and published. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. It's really just amazing how there's this pathway, basically, for wound healing. And there's so many little pieces of the puzzle that we we still don't know. But what you're talking about are some great discoveries of parts of that pathway that we do know now and that we can utilize to try to influence wound healing and improve wound healing. So I think that's wonderful. And I commend you for all the work that you have done personally to try to further that cause. Um, And we are here to talk about wound care. And of course, we're talking beyond just, you know, antibiotic ointment and band-aids. We're talking about serious wounds that may not be easy to heal. And I do want to say, I think a lot of listeners might actually be surprised to hear that plastic surgeons can actually often play an important role in the wound healing field. So could you first start by explaining what factors may serve as a hindrance to wound healing? Why do we even have to have specialized wound treatment sometimes? Why can't wounds always heal themselves? What kind of problems might hinder that? That's a question that also is becoming more and more known in its complexity, just like the notion of cancer from 20 or 30 years ago to the present. We now know that cancer is not a single thing, but abnormal growth can happen in all kinds of ways. Cells can lose their control and become cancerous from a myriad of things. And almost everyone's cancer is biochemically unique and individual. Mm -hmm. It's the same with uh, wound healing. We now know there's so many factors involved that the least little bit of interference in any step can slow down healing And if some critical milestones are not met, the wound seems to hit a brick wall and just be stuck and can't progress. The body, Mother Nature, has essentially two ways to close a wound. And one is to get the surface epithelial layer back over all the open raw area that does not have a skin covering. And the other is to develop fibrous tissue controlled by myofibroblasts that start knitting and tightening this material so that the fibers contract and bring the edges of the wound closer and closer together. So the wound becomes smaller and smaller. So the two basic ways of healing are re-epithelialization and contraction. And both of those factors can be inhibited by a long list of your own personal poor metabolism. And our primary uh, examples of that are poor blood supply, diabetes, Toxic, irritating agents put in the wound in an attempt to kill the germs which have grown there. And Mm -hmm. bacterial interference is uh, one of the most frequent causes that interferes with the healing of wound. So infection has always been and continues to be an ongoing problem in wound healing. 
Yeah, those are excellent points. And I think, you know, I've seen that in my practice, and I think a lot of plastic surgeons have seen that in their practice. Um, so given that, in what capacity are plastic surgeons sometimes asked to participate in treating wounds beyond what you have done with your very specialized research? Just the average plastic surgeon, how might they impact the wound healing field and situation? I think that's an important point to stress, Regina, that people don't associate plastic surgeons immediately with wound healing. But plastic surgeons, more than any other specialty, deal with the skin over all the areas of the body. So wounds can occur anywhere, from feet to the head to the fingertips. So plastic surgeons are, first of all, used to going all over the body and used to dealing with skin. Mm -hmm. Plastic surgery also has a deep grounding in care of burns and the use of uh, skin grafting. Right. People may not think about the fact that moving a sheet of thin harvested skin from one area to cover another produces another wound, a donor site Mm -hmm. that also needs to be healed. So your success in surgery depends on your healing the place where you took the skin from. And it was in those kind of wounds I first used my model of the VAC and its predecessors. Mm -hmm. I think skin grafting, manipulation of skin, moving of skin, and working from head to toe and burn background are all the reasons plastic surgery is uh, traditionally involved in wound healing. And another thing I think of is often we may be called in to help with debridement. Could you explain what debridement is and why it might be necessary? Yes, a wound that is not healing, that was uh, badly damaged with the injury, may wind up with dead tissue, the uh, leakage of serum, the ooze of blood. All those materials are just a natural culture medium for bacteria, and the bacteria may kill more tissue. Mm-hmm. So generally, a, a failed or failing wound uh, has a surface which is not viable, not alive. And removal of all that necrotic or infected or bio-burden material is necessary before you can even begin to think about healing that wound. And removal of all of that is included in the term debridement can be uh, simple uh, scraping with a knife edge and some topical anesthetic in the clinic or dramatic uh, removal of material under general anesthesia in the operating room for horrible infections like necrotizing fasciitis. Where you have to really be aggressive to try to get that to heal and help the patient. Yes, Uh, Well, over the decades, you know, you've seen a lot of advances in plastic surgery. And I wonder if there are a few you can think of right now that you could tell the listeners about that have had maybe the most impact in terms of what we can now offer patients for wound care. 
um, you know, as as we've progressed in our knowledge as a surgical society, if you will, of how to best take care of patients. And one of those is going to be, I, I want to talk about the wound vac, but I'd like to talk about some other things first, uh, what you have seen or what you think has been significant uh, over the decades. You know, it is decades. Goodness, uh, 78 to 23 is... Uh, 45 years, yeah. Yes. When I first started in plastics, the reading was primarily about how to move the skin alone, Mm -hmm. how you can move a section of skin on a pedicle or base that was still attached and provided its blood supply, and how you could rotate it or how long you could make it, uh, how you could move skin by grafting. I remember when I was a senior resident and doctors uh, Masters and Robinson. Those are big names in plastic surgery. Yes, I was lucky to have them as my teachers and mentors. They selected me to go attend the first muscle flap symposium. Wow. I was so impressed by what they were doing. The concept is that In the skin, you look for places where an artery runs up into a pad of skin and runs for a distance so that that artery can supply a longer section of skin. Supply blood supply. The extent of uh, flap you can raise without that main arterial supply is fairly limited, and the dimensions are are set for what you can elevate and turn without uh, the end of the flap necrosing. But all those blood vessels, before they come up into the skin, travel in the muscle. So the principle was very simple, and it was just amazing to everybody there. If you elevated the muscle that contained the blood vessel to the skin, you could turn that muscle and get many times more distance to move the skin than you could with the artery for the skin alone. So combining muscle and skin, and they called this a myocutaneous flaps. So basically, you're talking about the concept of trying to heal a wound by providing new tissue to cover it. So you're taking tissue from a nearby area and rearranging and bringing good, healthy tissue in that muscle, that skin that's supplied by that artery you're talking about to cover that wound and heal the wound that way which is just such a fabulous advancement in plastic surgery. It really changed the face of reconstructive plastic surgery. Yes. This was especially important in large traumatic wounds where great big sections of tissue were lost. Mm -hmm. And the most frequent type of situation in which we saw a need for that were the huge ulcers that paralyzed people developed. Mm, yeah. Called decubitus ulcers. Sure. Like pressure sores, yeah. I feel quite uh, honored to probably have been the first one to do a myocutaneous flap in the state of Kansas. Wow. I came back home from that conference, and uh, a couple weeks later, we did one. That's amazing. Kudos. That concept continued to evolve all through 
you know, the next 45 years for me, I saw flaps go from all kind of muscle sources to why bother with the muscle if we take the artery alone mm-hmm. and cut it from the muscle and sew it in to a big artery near where we want to go, that gives us the same kind of arterial flap. Yeah. And because you're cutting it free and re-sewing it, these were called free flaps. And that was the next big advance. And probably the majority of flaps now are done in that manner. Yeah, so you're not limited to just being a neighbor or nearby where your wound is. You could take tissue from anywhere in the body with this free flap technique and find a blood vessel to hook it into and place it over that wound. And so you're right, that has just taken it next level. It's it's amazing what can be done. Well, you know, we've been talking about surgical solutions for wounds. What about some other non-surgical advances? You know, some of the things I'm thinking about are something that we nickname HBO, which does not stand for uh, a cable channel, but stands for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and um, other maybe specialized chemically treated bandages to promote healing or fight bacteria, building off some of the principles that even, you know, from ancient times, you know, people have known about, but we have taken them a step further. So what are your thoughts about that? Uh, Yes, I'm glad you bring that up. Oxygen is so critically important. And if we are not able to deliver it through the arteries, we can increase the oxygen in the entire body by putting that body into a hyperbaric chamber. The hope with that kind of therapy is that once the wound is healed, the demand for that oxygen will no longer exist and the pre-existing blood supply will be sufficient to maintain that healing. Um, One of the least recognized but biggest advances to me has been the understanding of bacterial infection and how to deal with it. When we look at even ancient approaches to wounds, we see the use of wine, vinegar, and recognize the presence of alcohol and uh, thick, soothing... uh, Or honey. Yes, uh, honey. Nature-derived soothing agents to put on a wound and wrapping it with linen. And we recognize now the significance of what wrapping does for lymph flow and to hold a wound together and what bandaging accomplishes. And these are ancient concepts that we're only now finding out the biochemistry of. The biggest uh, advancement may be the understanding of the development of biofilm by the bacteria and the inability to affect that biofilm by either topical agents or uh, systemically delivered antibiotics. Um, The work of uh, Krizik and others, uh, that if a bacterial infection reached the level of 10 to the fifth number of bacteria per cubic millimeter, then the wound would not heal, a skin graft would not take the wound would become chronic or show further deterioration. 
So controlling the number of bacteria has long been recognized as uh, being an important thing to accomplish in a wound. And the question has just been how to do it, because some things that are good at killing bacteria are also good at killing tissue. Yeah, the, the counterproductive. Well, let's circle back around to the wound vac then. This is an advancement in wound care that you yourself were integrally involved in. Would you describe what the wound vac is and the purpose it served? Why was it even needed? Like many things we consider inventions, uh, they don't occur in isolation. Mm -hmm. They occur in response to a recognized need with many people seeing different paths to the same thing. And the use of a combination of vacuum or suction with a material to absorb drainage and a material to create an isolated chamber in which you could control the pressure was popularized and first uh, reported by Argenta and Moroquas from Wake Forest in the early 90s. And that was simply a black foam, like a refrigerator filter foam, Mm -hmm. put on the wound and covered with this uh, plastic film. So you made a sealed chamber, and then you plunged a suction tube into that and sealed it and attached it to a vacuum pump. And create internal suction on that wound, yeah. Yes, and the KCI company produced this material for use as a vac, so that was the first time we had this particular material to use. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I had used other foams and my own types of pump or even wall suction to generate the vacuum and different ways of attaching the tubes. And my own fascination with it was as a delivery system for the growth factor we were using in our wound care center. So uh, my system was uh, an additive and then vacuum subtracting system. Mm -hmm. And that became the basis for the uh, irrigation vac patents uh, ultimately. I wondered, uh, Regina, how all this was working at the time. The most popular theory developed over the last 20 years was the MIT Harvard bioengineering group there felt that you were directly influencing the little skeletal structures inside each cell. Mm. So by changing the cytoskeleton, you were changing the signals to the cell DNA Mm -hmm. and actually changing what the cell did. And that's on a cellular level. If we take a step up and think about a larger scale, what's happening with the wound vac is we are effectively suctioning excess fluid in the wound. And so that is helpful to the wound. But also the physical act of vacuum and suction may help a wound contract and close a little faster than it would on its own. Is that part of the thinking? Yes, exactly. 
uh, Orgill likes to call it a macro and micro yes. deformation. Yes. Uh, the micro deformation being the effect on cell signaling and the macro deformation being the actual physical movement of all the softer tissues toward the center of suction, the center of the wound, by the simple application of the vacuum. This is a very debated topic. I was fortunate because of the royalties I received from the vac to be in a position now since I've retired to fund my own research on this. Mm. And uh, just uh, two years ago, we published our findings that the response to the VAC is essentially a foreign body reaction. Mm -hmm. So the black foam used in the VAC is very irritating and produces an intense, immediate foreign body reaction. This, I think, is the basis for how many people use the VAC hmm. to prepare the wound with uh, a week's treatment with frequent dressing changes every two days, intense, massive antibiotics, mm -hmm. and the bacteria adhere to the foam. So the foam becomes full of bacteria, mm -hmm. and if you pull that out every two days and you're using vacuum, the bacteria do not invade in the tissue. That's a pretty amazing advantage of the wound vac. Yes. So if you get this intense fibrotic and angiogenic response, but can control the bacteria and then remove the foam, you have a tissue base you can close secondarily. Yeah. Pretty impressive that you're saying that um, a lot of surgeons are using the wound vac to basically prep a wound, get a wound ready for a surgical intervention like coverage with a skin graft or something like that and getting it so it's even eligible for that. So that, that's pretty wonderful. Yes. De deliberately invoking this intense tissue response and ev everyone who's used a vac knows that the tissue turns uh, bright red vascular yeah. red right before your eyes with the first dressing change yeah, so it's really little blood vessels growing in there and that's what we like to see so i'm proud of that that we've helped define the physiology of what the vac is doing well you should be quite proud quite an accomplishment um, well, you know, we've talked a lot about the great progress in wound care, wound management, and I just wonder if you think there is something still lacking in the field of wound care. Is there anything that you see potentially on the forefront or anything you would like to see that's not really even being worked on now or any thoughts you have along that regard? You know, Regina, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. That's how good ideas come. I got into wound care specifically when the first usable, demonstrably effective growth factor preparation became available. Mm -hmm. And that was produced from the patient's own blood by uh, collecting, packing their platelets, and then releasing the platelet-contained factors, which are multiple. Mm -hmm. That's, in fact, what happens in the body with the initial pouring of blood into a wound. Uh, the platelets come in with the blood and are some of the most active uh, internal factors in starting the healing cycles. Um, it was a shame that that uh, could not be kept up because it was 
not cost-effective because of the regulations that came into practice of necessity with the onset of uh, HIV, mm-hmm. the cost of testing and storing, and the difficulty of cross-state delivery just made uh, that system not economically feasible, and the company folded and stopped. Mm. But even today, 20 years later, there are still some companies that uh, make platelet preparation from the patient's own blood. You do it yourself in your wound healing center and deliver that buffy coat paste to the patient's wound. Mm -hmm. So it's still in use today. But all the interval attempts at growth factor delivery in a shelf-stable form, whether single agent like Regranex or multiple agents, uh, have not been effective clinically for general use. Mm. The most effective method for growth factor delivery is to actually place living cells on the wound that are cultured and delivered as a tissue culture, Mm. such as aplograph and dermograph, which use the cell-generated growth factors from dermis alone or dermis and epidermis. And those are really the most effective, but they're horrendously expensive, poorly covered by insurance, Mm -hmm. and just not widely applicable. What do we need? We need some type of storable, easily deliverable, multiple factor growth factor so that we can push early appropriate healing to avoid the barriers we hit with bacterial infection or the person's own poor tissue response with diabetics with poor blood supply, with some immune diseases. We need some kind of factor, a multiple factor agent that we can apply to wounds again. The current buzz and excitement is that this may be done by microvesicles, secretomes, and the little um, extracellular microsomes that cells produce. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that that's what the future will hold for wound healing. Well, we will look forward to that. That sounds promising. Oh, gosh, this has been so great. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, One last question I do want to ask you, and maybe this gets back to why you even started your career, but what do you love about plastic surgery? Oh, without a doubt, I love the fact that I can see it with my own eyes. I was a general surgeon doing gallbladders and hysterectomies before I was a plastic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And you, you take out the gallbladder and you sew the skin up and you just hope you did everything right inside. You can't see. That's right. You have to uh, rely on uh, on how the patient's doing. But with plastic surgery, you can see it with your own eyes, and you get so much immediate information. I just found it 
so exciting to watch my stitch line and uh, learn how to read them and learn how to understand the signs that Mother Nature was giving me right to my own eyes. I think that without a doubt that visualization and surface level involvement was what I loved about plastic surgery. That's a great point. And I think we'll have to leave it there. Dr. David Zamorowski, accomplished plastic surgeon and eternal innovator, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Regina. You bet. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.